You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Hello and welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, and today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Weiner. He's an emergency medicine physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and he practices addiction medicine and is director of research at Bicycle Health. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Weiner. I want to begin by giving you some time to introduce yourself and tell our listeners about how you got interested in addiction and how you got involved with the treatment of addiction. Yeah, sure. You know, so I've been, as you know, I'm an emergency physician. I've been practicing in Boston for uh, you know over, over 20 years at this point. And I just saw people coming in more and more uh, struggling. Sometimes it was with, with, in withdrawal and sometimes it was overdoses. And it gets really hard, particularly when there's someone that's young that otherwise deserves a very long life. Um, and I became interested in opiate prescriptions overall and started working initially on that. And then along with the epidemic, which is changing from focus more on opiate prescriptions to, to uh, you know, other substances like heroin and fentanyl, became more addi- interested in addiction medicine. And for the past several years, I've been focused really on SUD-related issues um, and really trying to make a difference upstream from what, when we see patients that are struggling in the ED. Great. Now, um, I read in this paper that you wrote, um, actually specifically in the methods section, that the study evolved out of a quality improvement project called United Against Racism. And I was wondering how you transitioned from that work into studying stigmatizing language. Yeah, sure. So this, we're really proud of this. This is through Mass General Brigham, which was our hospital system, came up with this plan to do United Against Racism. Uh, it was a really conscious decision to look hard at our outcomes and see how we were performing and in difference in performance between patients with different races and ethnicities. And unfortunately, the, the news is generally not good. I mean, there, there are disparities in treatment. Uh, we typically see minoritized populations have worse outcomes, even in our top-tier academic uh, hospitals. And so the whole idea was, like, let's just shine a light on this. Let's do whatever we can to recognize it and then fix it. So there were multiple projects that happened across the whole organization, but um, I was fortunate to co-chair the, the Substance Use Steering Committee with um, the senior author on this paper, who's Dr. Sarah Wakeman. And we said, let's look at it from, from our perspective with substance use disorder, and let's see if we see differences uh, in, in how we're using stigmatizing language amongst our patients, depending on the, the race and ethnicity. Very good. I think that's uh, interesting, uh, an interesting background leading to the current study. Uh, I looked at some of your methods, which involved this rule-based natural language processing algorithm. Now, is this something that you had experience with from other projects, or was this tool unique to this study? Yes. Yeah, so for me, I was, I'm really fortunate because I have a, a bunch of amazing collaborators, and particularly uh, Dr. Li Zhao, who's one of the co-authors, along with her postdoc, who's Dr. Paul Lowe. They're, they're really experts in this. And we alluded to this in the introduction as well, too. Um, Dr. Zhao did a, a paper where she was looking at generalized stigmatizing language 
not just for substance use disorder, but for all sorts of medical conditions and found that it is very pervasive. And so uh, we reached out because we've collaborated in the past and we said, can we apply this amazing framework to, to substance use disorder? And that's how that came along. So I'm not an expert myself in natural language processing, although now I have a much better understanding of it after this work. And it's a pretty interesting methodology. Yeah. And I was glad to see that uh, you took some of those early results and then had manual reviews performed by researchers so that you could verify that uh, it was picking out the correct stigmatizing language. Um, and just before we dive into the data, I want to ask you about the stigmatizing language itself. Are there certain trends that you noticed clinically prior to this study? Like any stigmatizing language that you noticed that had a particularly negative impact on your patients? Yeah, we didn't study that in the paper, but I, I think that there are some certain words that were, were triggering. So to go back to your the kind of just trends in general, the word that we saw most frequently was abuse and then followed by substance abuse. And of course, that's um, it's a change, right? We still have journals which use abuse in their title. We still have the National Institute on Drug Abuse. We have the drug abuse screening test. Uh, it's in ICD-10. So that word is is very pervasive, and I know we're trying to do whatever we can to to change it to you know, use disorder instead of abuse. But um, there are other words that I, I think are, I would imagine are more visceral for patients. Um, some of the ones like, you know, junkie or addict as an example, or like dirty if you're referring to a urine toxicology test. Fortunately, we didn't see that very much. We did have some cases where we, we saw that pop up, uh, but it wasn't used very frequently. So in, in that sense, it was reassuring. Those are some really good points. And I think um, this is something that a lot of clinicians don't think about or maybe do carelessly. And uh, I do think a paper like this is a step in the right direction towards changing the stigma as our field evolves. And, uh, you know, how we look at these disorders is going to obviously change over time as well. Um, All right. So looking at some of this data, I was wondering if any of these trends surprised you, like the racial disparities or the insurance differences. Um, Were there any results that surprised you? Yeah, sure. So the the first was, just again, that the the frequency of the use of abuse and how pervasive that was. Uh, And we actually found some of that was related to a preformed template that some of the providers were using that said substance use evaluation, and they would fill out the rest of it. And we really debated about using that or not based upon it. We said, oh, it's just a templated message. That might not be what their intent was. But ultimately, we said, look, especially with the 21st Century Cares Act, where patients have access to their own records, they could be reading this within, they could be reading a note. And then also other uh, other healthcare providers are seeing this as well, too. And then it normalizes the language. So we decided to include that. So that was one of the things that, that surprised me. As far as the results, you know, we looked by provider type, and it was pretty interesting to see. So if you look at documentation by nurses, uh, only about 4% had a note that we considered a stigmatizing note that had a, some stigmatizing language. Uh, for MDs and nurse practitioners, it was about 25%. And for physician assistants, it was nearly 50%. And that was surprising to us. We don't really know why that is. Uh, you know, it could be related to, to training. It could be related to the types of notes that they're writing. Maybe more uh, physician assistants are using more uh, H&Ps as opposed to progress notes, and they're more detailed, and they might have more chance of, of putting stigmatizing language in there. 
but we thought that that would be an interesting focus of education for uh, for people that are in training for for physician assistants. The, regarding uh, race and ethnicity, uh, I was re- reassured that we didn't see much of a difference in white and black, but we actually did see much less risk of stigmatizing language for patients who are Asian. And it's it's not entirely clear why that is. If um, maybe people think that if you're Asian, you have less chance of having addiction or less less reason to put stigmatizing language in the document. So uh, those were all very surprising to us. Very good. And yeah, that uh, is one of the the ones that jumped out to me because the difference was so large. Uh, for the white and black patients, you know, the percentage of stigmatizing language in their notes was between 62 and 65%, whereas for Asian patients, it was below 40%. Um, now, what cl- can clinicians learn from a study like this, and how should these findings affect clinical practice? Yeah, well, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of being a, a word police or, uh, in, in any way, but I think that, you know, the, the basis of this paper was, was NIDA's document that says words matter. And we know this. We hear this from patients. We, we know that the words that we use do affect them. We know that if you uh, label someone as a, a drug addict versus someone with a substance use disorder, that there are differences in the way that they're treated. That's evidence-based. And so I really do think we should, we should use these best practices with how we identify patients, uh, person-centered language, avoiding some of these stigmatizing terms, especially the more visceral ones, because it, it's about getting people into recovery, making sure that we're their allies, and when we use some of these words, it, it directly contradicts that. So I hope that it just will make people conscious about the words that they're using, uh, how they how they interact with patients, how they communicate with patients, and in some small way that it will just help us improve treatment for people that are struggling with substance use disorders. Okay. And as, as you worked your way through this project and looked at the results, did you find anything that you may want to study um, a little deeper in the future? Oh, of course. I mean, the, this study just shows the incidence of stigmatizing language, but it doesn't show anything related to patient outcomes. So could it be that patients that have more stigmatizing language in their documents do have worse outcomes than, than those who don't? Uh, it would be a very interesting study to, to be able to determine that. But I think that that's probably the, the, next, the, the next line of, of inquiry. All right. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to add to this discussion that perhaps I didn't ask about? Uh, there might it might not be um, newsworthy or, or airtime worthy, but we thought it was very interesting because when we first looked at the the NIDA document, it had all these stigmatizing words, and you think like you know alcoholic or user, things that if you just take it one word at a time, you might think, wow, that's stigmatizing. But when you go through the medical record, we use words like that all the time in a non-stigmatizing way, like alcoholic hepatitis right? Or alcoholic cirrhosis or uh, their username is. So um, it, it's very nuanced. It's very context dependent. Uh, and I, I thought that was very interesting. Well, with that, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Weiner, for being a guest on the podcast. No, thank you. I really appreciate the, the attention to the article and um, um, just thank you for your time. Dr. Weiner's article can be found in the July-August issue of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. 
This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.